Welcome to Educational Alpha. I'm Bill Kelly, CEO of Kai Association and your host, bringing you on the ground conversations with business leaders, educators, and industry colleagues from around the globe. Educational Alpha is sponsored by iCapital, the financial technology company with the mission to power the world's alternative investment marketplace. Part innovator, part educator, and part navigator of the alternatives industry, iCapital offers intuitive, scalable digital solutions that have transformed how private market and hedge fund investments are bought and sold. With iCapital, financial advisors, wealth managers, and asset managers around the world now have access to everything they need to deliver the return and diversification potential of alternatives to high net worth investors. To learn more, visit iCapital.com. In this episode, we are joined by Marco Papich, a renowned expert in geopolitical risk. Marco shares his insights on the shifting dynamics of a multipolar global environment and its impact on climate change. Get ready for an intellectually stimulating conversation as we uncover the intersection of politics, finance, and global challenges. Stay tuned for an episode packed with expertise and thought-provoking insights on geopolitics and its implications for investors. Listen in. Marco Popich, welcome to Educational Alpha. Well, thank you so much, Bill, for having me. It's a real pleasure. The pleasure is mine. So I know you've been chatting with my colleague, Steve Novakovich, and we, I think like a responsible credentialing body, are thinking about geopolitical risk and then Sort of independent of that, I had the chance to see you present in North Carolina a couple of months ago, and you and I were able to spend a little bit of time together. And I came away with a lot of interest, maybe more questions than the answers about what I understand in this space. And I'm not sure if we're going to resolve them all in the next 20 to 30 minutes, but I'm going to try like hell to do that. But before we get there, perspective matters. And I think I even saw that maybe a quote in your book, or somebody wrote that as an observation. So maybe a little bit of your background, because you've been a little bit of a global citizen early in your life. And I think that that does make a difference as well, especially if you're dwelling in the corridor of geopolitical risk. So maybe a bit on Marco. Yeah. So I was born in Yugoslavia. Yugoslavia, of course, is a country that no longer exists. So speaking of perspective, I learned as a very young kid that paradigm shifts come at you fast. I also lived through what was at the time, I believe, the second worst hyperinflation in human history. So that was another feather in my cap of macro. I saw a complete collapse of a currency and what that means. I moved around a lot, in part because Yugoslavia fell apart. My family went to the Middle East, to Jordan. I also spent a little bit of time in Iraq and then finished high school in Switzerland and then had the pleasure to go to the University of British Columbia for undergrad, Texas for grad school, and then Montreal, where I worked in BCA research, which is really where I cut my teeth in macro. That's a very, very old and reputable research firm that was founded in 1949 in Canada, in Montreal. And then I've been in California since 2019. Terrific. And now at Clock Tower. That's right. Clock Tower Group, an illiquid alternatives asset manager in Santa Monica. A few things. One, you mentioned Yugoslavia and the fact that it does not exist anymore. Is there a trade to short a sovereign? Yeah, I think the easiest is currency. Currencies are the best way to articulate a short against a sovereign. CDS, not sure about that. That's, I think, fraught with risks. 
But currencies are the easiest way to do that, bond market as well, if obviously it has one. The problem with currencies is what we've seen with, for example, Russia, and that's that you can close a capital account, obviously, and then you can't really execute on that trade anymore. But so much as they are freely traded, I think currencies are the best way to do that. So you were probably too young at the time to set that structure up, but probably a foundational beginnings to where you are today. Starting at the top, maybe broadly define what a geopolitical risk is. And then I want to explore whether or not it is alpha or beta. And I have semi-informed opinions, but I want to get your view on that as well. So maybe start with the definition. Well, geopolitics is both a risk and an opportunity. So first of all, I think it's very important for investors in 2023 to really know that because if we only see it as risk, we will only think of it as a post facto contributor to our portfolio construction. It's something left to the risk guys and girls in your office. And I think that's a mistake. It should be something that everyone focuses on. It is a realm of factors, of variables, of influences into your investment strategy, both short-term and long-term, that doesn't deal with the relatively traditional macroeconomic or market forces. It's not one of those forces, but it underpins them. So if you want to have a long-term view of growth and inflation, which are the only two inputs into anybody's SAA, those two are invariably going to be impacted by the political and geopolitical environment in which you live. The context, the macro context, is first and foremost set by politics and geopolitics. It is not set by 12 Olympian gods at the FOMC. Absolutely not. It is not set by demographics. It is not set by technology. It is set first and foremost by politics and geopolitics. That is the bottom of your pyramid of asset management, of portfolio construction. Now, most people listening to this might say, well, no, that's not the way I've been taught. Yeah, because you've been a fish swimming in water and you've been unaware of the water. And so what I mean by that is that I would argue 90% of investors, especially in the West, are fish swimming in water. Water is supplied to them by globalization, by American hegemony, by Paul Volcker. And what I mean by that is that we had this great moderation context in which politics and geopolitics appeared to have withdrawn from the forefront, but they didn't. They created the context in which we were. Globalization was set by the failure of communism, of the alternative to Western capitalism. That failed in 1985 when the Soviet Union moved towards perestroika and got lost. It didn't happen when Soviet Union collapsed. Socialism was already on its last legs when Gorbachev came to power. And on the domestic front, you had the victories by the Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher revolutions that set the laissez-faire supply-side economics, the Chicago School, as the default setting. And so for 40 years, it appeared as if the bottom of your pyramid had nothing to do with politics and geopolitics, but it absolutely did. And now all those forces are kind of in reverse. We think about both tactically and strategically how to invest. We have to be aware of the water that we're swimming in because it's gotten a little bit choppier. And I think as an American, and I've lived and worked my entire life in the U.S., I think maybe we are the most guilty of being a fish in that water as well. And I say that from the vantage point, I, and I think I had this story right, Marco, when I heard you speak, you talked about the schoolyard bully. And I don't support or promote bullies, but if you go to a playground and there's one bully out there, you kind of know the rules of the land, but if you make a deal with the bully, 
And now you walk across the other side of the playground is another bully and another one. I think the way you would express this is that the U.S. was holding a lot of the cards. Their will could be forced upon many people. They could make something happen just by sheer threat or shadow. And maybe that doesn't exist anymore. So you don't have to retell the bully story. But I thought it was an interesting way of describing the world order that we once knew and where it is today. So yeah, again, the water that we swam in as investors was extremely supportive of the way that we think. It meant that the government withdrew from all sorts of aspects of life that would have otherwise influenced our decision-making, whether it's industrial policy, whether it's taxation, or whether it was geopolitics. So the geopolitical front, what's happened is that the United States of America still remains the most powerful country in the world. It's head and shoulders above everyone else, in my view, and we can quantitatively prove that. The problem is that in order to compel behavior of other states, you have to be head, shoulders, torso, and hips above everyone else. This is where a lot of people fall into the trap of dismissing the world we're in by what I call aircraft carrier counting. You know, I mean, if you've seen this, it's usually American-based analysts who are telling you, no, 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 the world is still the same as 20 years ago. America's still number one. Eh, yeah, but the gap is much, much less between one and two. And so that's really important because it means that the world is less organized and less ordered. And here, non-American analysts would cheer that from their own bias. So American analysts are biased because they think America is always number one. Non-American analysts are biased because they're like, well, if America is not number one, the world is fair. More countries are making decisions independent of one another. The U.S. can't just pick up the phone and change the reality on the ground. Isn't that something we should all strive for? The problem with that alternative, a multipolar world, is that it's rarely fairer. You just have more countries that can pursue their interests independent of one another. They're still pursuing their interests. And so Russia gets to invade Ukraine. Turkey gets to invade Syria. Turkey and Russia almost go to war over Syria. You have a lot of independent dynamics that produce potential new conflicts that nobody's really in charge of. And that's the dynamic today that's creating all this volatility on the geopolitical front. That's the multipolar global order that China and Russia they almost use the word multipolarity as PR, as marketing, but I do think that we exist in it and we as investors have to navigate it. The word politics is in geopolitical and everybody has their views and certainly in the US, again, it's become a very polarizing discussion. But I think that regardless of anybody's views, I think everybody would agree there's a tremendous amount of uncertainty when it comes to politics and geopolitics. And I think if I'm an investor, I like uncertainty because if I can figure it out and harness it, I can get alpha. It's sort of a simplistic way of looking at it, but I had started proffering the question earlier on, Marco, about geopolitical alpha and beta. And I guess it depends on my holding period, and you can respond to this, that if I'm taking it into my calculus in the public equity market, so trading in currencies, these are very liquid markets and they could be very volatile and Maybe there is some beta that I can measure there, maybe harder to capture alpha. But if I think about alternative investments in places like infrastructure or private equity in India or sub-Saharan Africa or other parts of the world where the political uncertainties 
are there and they can be quite acute. And if I have an infrastructure partner one day and find out that they've taken over by fiat, this toll road that I thought I owned, what am I going to do about that? So maybe talk about both the beta in geopolitical and the alpha as well. So first of all, I mean, I think you get it, Bill. I mean, when you say this uncertainty is not something to fear. And first of all, I have three degrees in political science. So that means I'm an expert at flipping burgers. I'll be very self-deprecating. <laughs> when I joined finance, I did so later in life. I spent some time of my career in political risk consulting, didn't like it at all. And when I joined finance, to me, the uncertainty was on the other side of the ledger. I have much higher conviction in my geopolitical and political calls. I'm not saying I'm right or wrong. I'm just saying it was funny to me when my colleagues would say, oh, this is uncertainty. This is unpredictable. And I'd be like, as opposed to what you're doing, earnings are predictable. You get that right all the time. The Fed has obviously predicted every recession, right? <laughs> this is the business we're in. Just because it's difficult to express with math doesn't mean it's less or more uncertain. So the uncertainty should not be feared. Now, your question is, okay, what's easier to generate alpha or beta? And I would say that they're both relatively same. I mean, alpha in geopolitics is generated when the market misprices geopolitical events, either to the upside or the downside. It's a much more gambling proposition. You have a game. New England Patriots versus Buffalo Bills, the market sets the line. You're betting against that line. There's election, there's a Russian invasion of Ukraine. These are events, market reacts to them, it prices those events. And then you generate alpha by basically assuming that the market is, if you disagree with the market's pricing. I like that space. About four times a year, four to six times a year, I think I have ways to generate geopolitical alpha. It's not once a month. It's not once a week. I think it's four to six times a year. You will have a view that will have a three to six month horizon on which to generate alpha. A good example last year was shorting commodities. Russia invades Ukraine. Everybody bids up commodities, especially oil, in anticipation of some sort of an embargo of Russian oil. But close reading of European and American policy should have led us to conclude that the embargo was a PR effort to make our policymakers feel good about themselves, that they are doing something about the war, where in fact, we allowed Russia to export oil at lowered prices. So in other words, we got the same amount of oil coming out of Russia, but cheaper. And that wasn't a failure of the sanctions. It was by design. I mean, remember, we were dealing with 9% CPI. So this should have been a conclusion we got. Eventually, markets figured this out. China has a downturn as well at the same time, you short oil as a geopolitical alpha, which was very controversial to have that view because the second largest exporter of the world just invaded a neighbor. Why would you be shorting oil? But oftentimes geopolitical alpha is about that second or third order thinking. The price moves, the market overreacts, and then you sit down and you think about it and you see where the opportunities are. Beta is about long-term trends. It's about hitting those long-term trends that are going to matter. So your point about India or Indonesia, what countries are going to be winners in the next five to 10 years based on the geopolitical world that we inhabit? And that is, I think, more interesting to alternative investors because our holding periods are longer and we have less liquidity. And being wrong is much worse, I think, for private investors 
than for public investors when it comes to geopolitics. And what I find, Bill, and the reason I've really been so happy to collaborate with Kaya is I find that private investors are often far less educated about the impact of geopolitics than public. See, public market investors have at some point bought Brazilian real or they bought some Turkish assets and had to sell it. A lot of the folks I meet in the private space that hopefully are listening to this, let's be honest, last 10 years, they bought the tech companies in the US. Not all, obviously, there's the infrastructure veterans, there's all sorts of other parts of the PE superstructure, but a lot of the people I talk to, especially in California, just invested in tech companies and they would wave their hand like, this is nonsense. I invest in SaaS business. Well, number one, there is a lot of geopolitics in SaaS businesses too, with the tech blockade, with all sorts of problems between China and the US. And number two, you actually are more exposed to politics and geopolitics because you cannot get out of those investments as quickly. So you better get those long-term trends right. In terms of modeling geopolitical risk or the alpha, is it more situational or are there models that can give you some insight? You can try to model geopolitics into, for example, I've tried to assess how the interplay between domestic politics and geopolitics will impact growth and inflation. Those are things that somebody that's trying to figure out their SAA for the next five years can't quantitatively represent political and geopolitical shifts. But I think it's very difficult to model the impact of successful pursuit of structural reforms by Indian government on future benefits to somebody holding a private investment in India. Because there's multiplier effects that are quite likely to overshoot your expectations, both to the downside and the upside. And that's where we just have to, as investors, become far more comfortable with the qualitative. A couple of things with both, you mentioned both China and India. How important is demographics? India, great demographics, poorer country by China standards, China, horrible demographics, but a big economy. And this brings in not just demographics, but food security, water security, emerging middle markets. So there's a lot there. And maybe if I just pick on the word demographics in some of these large countries and shifts over the coming decades, what is the impact on that geopolitical risk or opportunity? I think that demographics is one of the worst things that investors have ever studied because it increases their conviction level in a way that should not happen. There is really, in my view, very little demographic dividend. And in fact, quite often there's a demographic curse, which is that you have too many people that you cannot employ. And that was one of the sources of Arab Spring. So if you think about the part of the world that experienced the Arab Spring, which was a very turbulent political revolutions that looked really, really positive in many, many ways, but have all fallen short of the hope. Arab Spring was produced by what most investors would have called excellent demographics. Lots of young people finishing universities, but those economies didn't have ways to employ them. India could experience political risk over the next five to 10 years for similar reasons, because they have a lot of young people who are competing for jobs with one another. That could be a source of tensions. So demographics, it's not deterministic. That's what I would say. I think far more important is gauging productivity gains. Productivity is far more important for long-term investors than demographics. So you can have a country that has bad demographics where they're not replacing necessarily the older 
cohorts, but if they're successfully implementing technology and if their education system is still stellar, they could overcome their demographic problems. South Korea is a good example of an economy that has one of the worst demographics in the world, same with Taiwan. The productivity has kept them afloat, in other words. And China too? Would you put China in that category as well? Chinese productivity has been coming down. Why? Because they've overemphasized real estate investment over infrastructure and fixed assets. So I think that China could still stabilize itself, but it needs to shift its investment profile. One out of every two dollars or half of every dollar that the Chinese economy has invested has gone into building condos. That is an unproductive form of investment. And so hopefully China can pivot away from that. But yeah, so that's why I don't want anyone to invest based on demographics. I think that would be a mistake. I think you want to invest on fundamentals, on macroeconomic fundamentals, on political fundamentals. Like this country has government in place that is trying to boost productivity. And then at the end, as your third, fourth, or fifth item, you can say they are also benefiting from a demographic dividend. I want to talk about three events and try to connect them to some degree. And you can, again, take your view inside in this, which is much more informed than mine. But if I look at the GFC circa 2008, we had a global problem and there's global cooperation to solve it. 12 years or so later on, we have COVID. And that was done in sort of a splintered way and sovereigns had different ways of approaching it. And we ended up with sort of a hodgepodge of solutions, but we're on the other side of it. And now I'm looking out on climate and that's a political football unto itself. Is it real or not? Certainly in the US, it depends on which side of the aisle you're on and you have your fervent opinions. But if it is an issue, and we've seen weather events around the world this year alone and 100 year storms happening every 100 days, that if we're going to solve or at least try to assess the impact on climate, it requires global cooperation. There's only one ozone layer and that does not have a passport. So do we need some level of political will and political cooperation to solve for, I don't know if it's every 10 years or so, but you can have these problems where they do come up and we've got to at least be able to pick up a phone and say, hey, what are we going to do about this together? So you could pick any one of those. I think there's been evolution of great cooperation, some cooperation, and maybe very little when it comes to solving for a climate. I'll take the other side of that, Bill. I would say we don't need cooperation. I would say that this multipolar global environment that has raised the threat levels and competition between states could actually be better for climate change than cooperation. And what I mean by that is that this, first of all, I was in the camp that thought that we would all basically boil ourselves to death over the next hundred years. And I would tell my clients when they would bring up climate change, I would say like, listen, read the story of the Easter Islands. You know, a competition between different groups on Easter Islands basically to build these giant heads ended up killing all the trees, and then they became completely, like they had civilization collapse. I'm sure they will, this will happen to us in a hundred years. And everybody would look at me like, what? That's it? And I was like, yes, and now I don't have to talk about climate change, I can talk about other things. <laughs> but then, right around COVID, as you said, there was a shift. I sensed a real shift, especially in Europe. And what's happening, I think right now, is a confluence of three forces. First of all, income inequality, wealth inequality, is creating an onus for governments to pursue industrial policy, to bring jobs back, to create lasting fiscal stimulus on basically industrial rebuilding of countries. And climate change creates an excuse to do that. 
we need to rewire our entire electrical grid to introduce more non-renewables. We need to shift our entire auto production towards EVs. These are kind of like big picture state-driven industrial processes. The second issue is we actually do have technological innovation that allows a lot of this to happen. And the third issue is this competition between states where a lot of these technologies become national security because they allow you to become far more self-sufficient without necessarily depending on imports of some commodities. Although obviously renewables bring a whole different set of commodities that become important. What I'm getting at here is that if you're a skeptic, that's fine. You can be a skeptic, be a skeptic. Climate change is not a threat. It's not a real thing. That's cool. But if I told you that every single politician on the planet wants consumers to buy a teal Hyundai Sonata, I'm pretty sure you would own Hyundai stock. In other words, it doesn't matter whether climate change is real or not. The policies that are focused on generating new technological innovation to solve it are real. And I compare this to the moonshot. Going to the moon was one of the dumbest things we as humans ever did. Soviet Union and the United States were fighting over what? Putting a man on the moon for what reason? We went there in the 70s, kicked around some moon dust, came back. We haven't been there since because there's nothing on the moon. It was a waste of time and effort. And yet that idiotic PR effort between two superpowers is the reason you and I can have this conversation on Zoom effectively. The technological innovation that seeped out of this endeavor, this moonshot, quite literally, is why we have the technologies we have today. Similarly, I think that this competition between states to solve climate change, to compete over EVs, batteries, access to commodities, will actually create innovation and will get us to a place where we don't all boil ourselves in 100 years from now. So I'm both extremely positive on the outcomes, but I also don't worry about international coordination because the Soviet Union, the US, quite literally did not cooperate on getting the, per the man on the moon, and we got there. And in fact, since we've had space cooperation, we haven't done anything. Since the 1990s, when the Soviet Union became Russia and started cooperating, we've just put the space station up there. We've kind of done incremental, not monumental innovation. And so I think we need to start thinking of competition, war, national security issues, as a driver of innovation, not necessarily as a negative to innovation. And so I'm, I'm actually quite hopeful that even without coordination, there will be technological progress in this space that will ultimately solve some of the climate change problems. Maybe as a tangent to what you just said, Marco, if I think about from the consumer standpoint, if everybody is now worried about supply chains and owning it and bringing everything onshore, I would assume in the short to medium term, the cost of goods are going to have to go up. Yes. But longer term, you think this level of competition produces better economic outcome? Well, I think that in your head, you just did a chart. Costs are going to go up because we're going to do some really stupid things. And by the way, I'm on record that the TSMC plant in Arizona, I mean, I said this six months ago, will be one of the greatest idiotic pieces of infrastructure America has ever built. It will rival well, I don't know what it will rival. Probably won't rival anything. So the United States of America decided it needs to build semiconductors. Sure. Okay. Cool story. And they decided to build a giant one in the middle of a desert where there's no water. And more importantly, there's no workers who know how to build semiconductors. And so what you're going to have, Bill, is you're going to have this extremely expensive piece of infrastructure that was put into Arizona almost certainly for political reasons because it's a purple state. So we need some jobs. Somebody needs to cut a ribbon before an election. 
And then we're going to produce the semiconductor, and then we're going to have to ship it to Long Beach with a truck and back to Taiwan, where the infrastructure is, to actually do something with the semiconductor, because it certainly is not in Scottsdale. So that's a good example of what we're doing right now. Now, that is kind of the white elephant of American government policy, but there's others all over the world. When you put them all together, it will raise costs of everything, but over the horizon, it will also collapse the costs of what they're producing. And so eventually, semiconductors will become coasters. In your office, when I come and we meet up in five, seven years, you're going to use a coaster made out of five nanometer chips. It'll be, they'll become a novelty item because we'll overproduce them. And so for investors over the long term, what does that mean? It means that we should be investing in picks and shovels. We should be investing in the CapEx goods, not the goods themselves. Because we are all engaged, not just Americans, but Chinese, the Saudis, the Europeans. We're all engaged in reproducing things we don't have to reproduce. The TSMC of the world will suffer because they are being forced to build these factories. But the companies that build the machines, they are agnostic to the idiocy of some of these policies. And you should own those companies on the long-term trajectory, the CapEx goods, the picks and shovels that are ignorant of whether they're shoveling and picking things that are stupid. We just have a couple of minutes left, Marco, and a lot that I still want to cover. But I'm going to try to jam two unrelated themes together and, and see if you can work your way out of that straitjacket. So every list I look at around geopolitical risk, cybersecurity is on there, cyber threats. But then also, and again, this might be a lot to try to cram in, but I'll see you do your best. These central bank digital currencies. So it's no longer a reserve currency. It might be a digital currency. And I don't know if that changes the complexion. If the sovereign's controlling it, I guess it does. So what is your view on both cyber risks and securities? And then as we move away from a reserve currency in, in any sovereign to maybe more of a digital currency, and does that present both risks and opportunities? I mean, I think on the cybersecurity, it's just obvious. I have nothing to add. It's a perpetual risk that we will have to spend money on, and therefore it becomes a perpetual investment idea. So who's not doing it well is a short? Who is? It might be. I mean, I think that's difficult to gauge. I certainly don't have the skill set to gauge that, but I do think that it's something that's with us. The world we're in right now is digital, so we have to have digital fences. As for digital currencies, I don't think there's much of a difference whether dollar is non-digital or digital. I really don't. I think that it will make monetary policy easier, and I think it will allow monetary policy to be more targeted. You can be creative once you have a digital dollar. For example, if you want to fiscally stimulate, you can target specific parts of the income stream. You can make that stimulus expire so that it doesn't sit on the household balance sheets and provide like inflationary tailwinds forever you'll be able to really get fancy. But fundamentally speaking, reserve currency status will still be determined by big picture fundamentals. What country is in charge? What country has liquid markets? What country has rule of law? Those things won't change. So there was all this nonsense for a while there because China is far ahead of most other countries in creating the digital yuan. And some folks were saying like, wow, that's a threat to the US. And it's like, no, whether the yuan is paper or digital, you're still going to decide to hold it. That doesn't matter. You're just dressing up a currency. Ultimately, what matters is, is China a hegemon? Can you buy and hold something in China, choose to sell it and extract your 
money out of the system. Like those things matter much more than whether it's digital or not. This concept of a first mover advantage toward a sovereign digital currency, you dismiss that? I dismiss that completely. A lot of folks who are very enthusiastic about cryptos and so on, they think this stuff matters. It doesn't. You own a currency because of what it represents. And when it comes to the US dollar, which by the way, is eroding as a reserve currency for a lot of reasons, but the reason it's still the first amongst equals or above it is because you can own an American asset, sell it and take your money back. You cannot do that with Chinese assets. I cannot go to Hainan Island, buy a nice little town home on the beach, and then when I want just sell it and take my renminbi out. There are limits to that. There's capital controls. And so that limits China as a reserve currency more than any other issue. And making it digital isn't gonna make a difference if I still can't export it out of the country. I get that. And thank you for putting those together in such a concise way, Marco, two unrelated last points. I like the way you think. I think when it comes to any subject, but particularly geopolitical risk, the pundit seems to suck all the oxygen out of the room and they speak with great conviction and conviction is not causation either. I think you've got a very practical, pragmatic approach. You know what you don't know. And I appreciate the insights and the discussion and also your contributions to the future of our curriculum. Super. Well, it's a real pleasure. And I just think that we all have to be comfortable with second and third order thinking because what's right in front of us may not be there for a long time. You and I are talking in August of 2023. In August of 2021, even, not just 2020, we would have been talking a lot about COVID. Listeners of your podcast, just think about how quickly that dissipated as an important macro driver. I was visiting a friend who was just going through chemo and I offered to wear a mask. He said it wasn't necessary. And I literally had to scrounge around the house to find one. And they were all over the place. It's like my reading glasses. When I need them, I can't find them. And it, it seems so long ago, but think about the disruption we went through. I think it's a very good and valid way to end the discussion. Marco, a little bit of a shameless plug for you. The book is Geopolitical Alpha, an investment framework for predicting the future. You were kind enough to give me a copy. I'm not sure if you autographed it for me, but I'll hold you to that the next time I see you. But interesting practical read, and I think foundationally correlated to what we've been talking about today and certainly what we need to be covering for investors thinking about a whole host of risks and geopolitical risk has got to be within that framework. So thanks again. Great to see you and I appreciate all you do. Thank you, Bill. Thank you for listening to Educational Alpha. I'm your host, Bill Kelly. Learn more about the Kaya Association and subscribe to the show at kaya.org. That's C-A-I-A.org. See you next time.